There's many things that we are that we don't necessarily strongly identify with. They're not always consciously aware that those are the glasses that they put on. Identity can become so strong that it overpowers everything else. These principles were not a part of my natural programming. I finally realized today why politics and religion yield such uniquely useless discussions. They're both redefining what it means to American, but also rejecting an old ideal of what it meant. It feels like more people identify with being Democrat or Republican than being American. You're not just born with those things. Like, those are ideas that you can develop. I don't think that was true 100 years ago, or even 50. You would feel some strong internal dissonance for working there. When I've been closest to the person I want to be, it's when I've used identity. If someone criticizes my writing, I'm much more likely to take that personally. I'm not that person, or I don't want to be that person. And now finally, the identity that has taken over all identities is... Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And today we're going to be talking about the power of identity. Hi everyone, this is Steph. I'm recording this the morning that this episode drops. I just wanted to note that this episode was actually recorded a few weeks ago. And given everything happening in the world, we didn't want what we're saying to be misinterpreted because we just didn't have all the information back then. I still hope you really enjoy this episode, and I do think it's important for all of us as humans to understand how identity can drive people to do certain things. As we say in the episode, it is one of the strongest forces in the world. Stay safe out there, and our heart really does go out to anyone hurting right now. Have you adopted a new identity as someone who is calm, who does yes, ASMR? I'm, I'm trying to do a cool, calm, collected pod today. No, no, no. Same old guy. All right. So identity, what are we talking about? What does that we, even mean? We are talking about identity. I guess, what is the definition of identity? The official definition. The identity of identity is the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. Ooh, so the word fact is interesting because I think that's a little bit at odds with what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think even just thinking through the the concept of identity, it is, to me, what people associate themselves with, right? So it could be a name, but not really, right? Like, your identity is not Calvin. Your identity is a surfer, maybe, maybe an American, maybe a male, maybe someone who likes certain types of food or likes traveling. Like, how would you actually describe yourself? A dilettante of the arts, a Renaissance man. <laughs> A spreader of only joyous and good information. Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the things I hope we get into is how our identities, our perceived identities have changed over time. And maybe one little jumping off point is I would say that there are fixed identities, physical characteristics that sometimes people identify with. So this could be your race, the state you were born, or I don't know, there's just many different things that are sort of out of your control, things that you're born into. And then there's the identities that you may choose. That could be a certain political party. It could be 
um, a company mission that you align with. It could, mm-hmm. as you said, uh, be some type of food, or maybe you call yourself a wine connoisseur. And you, you can see uh, quickly when you meet people, often in the first five minutes, they'll drop something that is somewhat revelatory of uh, what they may identify as their core identity. Yeah, there's so much that we could dive into there. And one of the things that really jumps out to me is biology Srinivasan. If people aren't familiar, he's this technologist, but he wrote this book called The Network State. And he talks a lot about identity. And one thing in particular is he talks about your primary identity and the fact that we are all such a compilation of many different identities, but there typically are certain ones that rise to the top. And an example he gives is like, I'm right-handed, but I probably don't identify as a right-handed person. There's many things that we are that we don't necessarily strongly identify with, right? And then there's also interesting dynamics where, to your point, certain things are fixed and out of our control, yet we still choose to identify with them in ways that we probably have nothing to do with. For example, I'm Canadian, and many Canadians strongly identify with being Canadian, but like, I didn't choose that. And I probably have zero impact on Canada or like what it means to be a Canadian, but it not only makes its way into my identity, but because it's part of my identity, I think it does cause me to act in different ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think there are these things that obviously you can't change. So you were born in Canada, you're Canadian. But the question is, how much do you make that a part of your core identity? So you could say, I'm Canadian through and through. Like, I only support whatever it is that Canada represents. Being nice. That's right. So the, <laughs> you're pointing to the second piece, which is, what are the associations with that identity that you choose to adopt? So, you know, American. American, I feel like, used to have more of a universal uh, nature to what that was. And, you know, it, it means I stand for freedom. It means I believe in democracy. It means I support capitalism. What's interesting about the modern discussion is a lot of these things are changing and people are, I'd say, de-emphasizing some sort of classic Americanism that they're actually saying is not right for me and maybe not healthy for the world. And they're saying, I want to choose something else. And they're both redefining what it means to American, but also rejecting an old ideal of what it meant. And so it's kind of interesting how identity shifts over time as well. Yes. And I think people would be surprised if they're not acutely aware of it just how much your identity really shapes who you are, but also the actions you take. Just to give a few examples of that, if you identify with being a journalist, right, that's very different than being a writer. And there are embedded nuances there where if you really identify as a journalist, and certainly if you identify as a journalist in the sense that it's your primary identity, you're just going to act different than someone who just happens to write on the internet, right? Even though, in theory, the things that you're doing are pretty similar. Um, You think that's true? Yes. I think if you have the tag journalist, you act in certain ways. And of course, people act counter to that. But like, I think the people who really absorb it into their identity act in a certain way. The same way that we talked about on a recent episode, if you identify as an artist, even if you happen to be a developer, even if you happen to be a doctor, I think that seeps into not just what you do, but how you do it. 
And I think one of the articles that I think is like one of my all-time favorite articles is from Paul Graham. And it's about this idea of keeping your identity small. And this was written in 2009. And the very first line of it says, I finally realized today why politics and religion yield such uniquely useless discussions. And he goes on, and I would encourage people to to read it, but just I think one of the reasons that he illustrates that sometimes people get lost in argument or debate is because really they've already adopted some sort of very strong identity. And like no matter what fact, no matter what argument is thrown their way, if it conflicts with that identity, that is so core to them that it's, you know, it's just not hurt at all. Yeah, I would liken it to your identity is somewhat like the glasses that you choose to see the world through and your choices then filter down to how you interpret or perceive what you may think is is truth, but is really just a perception. An example would be, let's say that you decided somewhere along the way that capitalism is a bad destructive force for the world. Mm -hmm. Even if you heard something like the ways in which capitalism helped a cause that you cared about, or the ways in which it benefited certain people or something else you agreed with, if it was framed in terms of like capitalism did this, if you have that anti-capitalist uh, sentiment or belief that it's somehow destructive, then you're likely not going to interpret that information as unbiasedly as you otherwise could. And I think the interesting part of this is that many people have these identities that they walk around with, but they're not always consciously aware that those are the glasses that they put on and that those glasses are actually changeable for a different set. Yes, exactly. He even has this line in his article that says, more generally, you can have a fruitful discussion about a topic only if it does not engage the identities of any of the participants. And I think what's so important about us talking about identity is that most people are not acutely aware of how identity plays a role in their life. And in the article, he also mentions how identity is not reserved for things that are quite significant, like religion, or maybe like politics. But he also says identity seeps into, for example, developers, and them just deeply identifying with certain programming languages, which if you're not associated with that world sounds really abstract and silly. But similarly, in other industries, people do the same thing. Like people deeply identify sometimes with certain sports teams. People deeply identify with certain brands like Apple, right? Like it's it's interesting that we take on some of these identities and often we don't necessarily have the most awareness about how they filter in. So let's move it beyond the abstraction for a second and Tell me, what is one thing that you identify with? It can be silly or it can be a big thing. Oh, I think one thing that I deeply identify with is that like technology is good. And that's an example of where I think because I believe that so deeply, and this is, you talked about like shifting identities. I think this is one that like has increased over time. If you ask me five, 10 years ago, I think one of my strongest identities would have been Canadian likes to travel. And like right now it, it is this deep fascination with technology and I think per our discussion, that probably shapes so much about the way I view the world. Well, how would you, if you had to characterize it, say that that impacts how you consume or interpret information, the conversations you have, 
or even the big decisions in life that you make? Like, is it going to all those levels? What do you think? What do I think? You should be able to tell me. You engage with me. I think one of the reasons that this concept of identity and our awareness of it is important is because I think actually people around you could probably tell you what your identity stack, apologies that term, primary identity, but also an identity stack. I think people would actually be maybe more accurate if they spend enough time with you in identifying what parts of your identity exist and what drive you. Because I think sometimes we would like to think we identify with certain things, but our actions and our emotions actually align with something else. Yeah, that that's a tricky part of it, which is there is the term I use, which is cultural gravity. There are the things that you should care about. And that's usually based on, I don't know, where you're from, who you hang out with, what your society says. And sometimes those pull you in some direction, but maybe inside you don't actually feel that way or you do adopt those beliefs. But going back to your case for a second, I would say my guess is that if you heard information that was, you know, basically saying that technology is bad or harmful in some way, I think you're intellectually honest enough where you could admit where that's true, but that you would have some more resistance to that or you wouldn't seek it out as much. And then on a bigger level, you work for a company that very much believes in technology in an optimistic way, like tech is how we build a better future. And I think if you work for a company that held the opposite position, you would feel some strong internal dissonance for working there and actually probably would be less happy even if your job was somehow better because you would be going at odds with this core belief or you would end up changing your belief, which happens as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I also could be wrong about this, but I think this piece of my identity I am aware of and I I like that it's part of my identity. But then there are scenarios which relate to Paul Graham's, you know, keep your identity small, which touches on this idea of being able to shift your identity and be open to other ideas, where sometimes there are aspects of your identity that do not serve you. So maybe we could go through a couple examples of those. I'll just share one really quickly of my dad, (laughs) where he basically has no cell phone. We're in 2023. And I remember getting my cell phone in what, grade eight or something, which would be, oh my God, like, wait, is this correct? 17 years ago? Yeah, about that. Oh my God. Anyway, so it's been a long time. And, you know, in the first few years, not that many people had cell phones or they weren't so ingrained in our society, but also they didn't have the same feature set. But today, think about all the things that are in a cell phone. The most prominent one that comes to mind is GPS. And so he will just like drive places without GPS and take the longest route ever, just the one he knows. He has no idea if there's any crashes or delays And then the one that impacts me is he's very nice and he picks me up from the airport every time I visit home. But because he has no cell phone, I have no way of contacting him. He has no way of checking my flight in real time. And so what he does is he just checks my flight before he leaves on his desktop computer. And then he drives to the airport and does circles until we find each other. But one time he, I don't remember if I told him the wrong information or what, but he came on the wrong day. And he just circled for hours until he decided to go home. Or maybe he like found a 
payphone, like a true like quarter driven payphone to call my mom and figure out what was going on. But that is an example where I think at this point, his identity is so fully formed around being the person without a cell phone, where even though it does not serve him to not own a phone, his identity is just too strong. And he just is that person. But what if it does serve him? Like, I could see an argument where the benefits of not having the cell phone outweigh the cons. Like, he doesn't have social media. He's not probably addicted to consuming the news. He is not easily contactable. He can navigate the world more freely and in a less efficiency-obsessed way. You know, it actually seems to me like that could be a good thing for him. And it's just at odds with your identity, which is more of a future-based, I I like tech, I think it's good. Right? Like, is it really that bad? I, I, I don't know. Because I think about I think about the things that you described and I'm like, okay, y- you know, you have no problem watching TV all day or like you have no problem playing poker on the internet. There's no judgment towards the way he spends his time, but more so like, I don't think that's it. Mm-hmm. And this is where my point about identity being observed by other people is actually very interesting because Balaji's primary identity thing, he uses Twitter bios as an example, where he comments on the fact that, you know, some people put hashtag BTC as the first thing in their Twitter bio. Some people say like Rangers fan or insert thing here that they think is the most defining characteristic. But actually, in some cases, I bet that's not true. And the people around them can note what else might be going on. Here's another example that you will resonate with. I refuse to take Advil. That is for sure an identity-driven decision because at some point when I was on a field trip when I was younger, I heard that it could like do something funky to your stomach, your liver, and then I decided to not take it. And by this point, I've just not taken it for like over a decade that it is now just like an identity driven decision. So is it Advil specific? Because uh, I'm just curious, it seems like if you believe in, I don't know, improvements in tech, healthcare, etc, to like improve human lives and conditions, uh, like why wouldn't you engage in that medicine? And you could say Advil was, you know, something that you've done research on, and and you don't personally want to take, but does that extend to like other forms of medicine? Advil and Tylenol, like acute painkillers, partially because I do think people overuse them. Because at any sign of pain, headache, nausea, whatever, like they take them. And I think that this is probably, again, a silly identity driven bias that I have. But I think like you should be able to endure some of that and only use this stuff when it really is required. Right. So maybe you're saying that your belief is so strong that you don't actually use it when you could benefit from it. Well, I think that's exactly right. If we were to break down identity, isn't it? It's partially a framing around what you align to the most, but often the strongest forms of identity also become this filter where you are unwilling to take in new information and you probably are making decisions that hurt you because you are just locked to certain ideas. Right. And so I guess just zooming out to why this is important, I think there are certain forms of identifying that are more important than others, or they're more powerful. Like you see this with people 
again, Paul Graham says it with religion, politics, you could use some like academic ideas or views about what the problems of the worlds may be. If you tie yourself to a specific set of ideas or an identity, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a Catholic, I'm whatever, then a lot of the things that you do in the world, including the people you interact with, what you do for work, how you read news stories, all of those are impacted by hopefully what was a conscious choice, but what is often just something that you were born into, right? Yeah. And I think you brought up different political affiliations, but I think in considering what identities become more prevalent over time, it's also a filter to just like analyze the world, right? I don't have concrete data on this, but isn't it interesting that it feels like in America, more people identify with being Democrat or Republican than being American? I don't think that was true 100 years ago, right? Or even 50? Yeah, I would say that there's definitely a an increase in anti-American sentiment. Like you see this on the 4th of July or other holidays where people used to be what you could call patriotic and get together and celebrate their pride in the country. But actually, a lot of people now seem to not like America, people who were born in America, and they have many problems with how the country is set up, the historical realities of its past and all of that. And they're rejecting America as an idea. And then there's people on the other side who are doubling down and saying, this is the most important thing we can do, which is to remember that we're American and to remember those values. And that's where you you see that overlap with politics as well. Yeah. And another thing I learned from Balaji's book is even understanding the concept of a nation and a state and the difference there. Like, do you know what the difference between a nation and a state, state not being like the United States and each individual 50 states, it just the term nation versus state. Nope. So a state is a political and legal entity. So we currently live in the United States of America. That is a state with certain federal laws and other people who have passports and again, like a political and legal relationship, right? And if you think about the United Nations, for example, really there's X number of states that are part of the United Nations, right? That have these specific borders. And again, people who live in those borders under certain laws versus a nation is actually a cultural, ethnic, and psychological identity, right? So an example of this is Palestine. And actually what often comes first is the nation, the group of people who then, if there is a large enough, I guess, need or desire or push for it, can sometimes become a new state, right? And actually what people often forget is that there's like new states developed all the time. So an example of like a modern day nation would be digital nomads. They don't live in one particular state or I guess country is probably an easier word to use here, but they're aligned with this method of I work online, I travel, I'm somewhat agnostic to where I actually live, but I'm a part of this community of people who believes in wandering and not just existing in my in the place where I was born. Yes. And sometimes some of these identities do not warrant a new state. I think there's many examples. And I think even like the digital nomad example doesn't necessarily warrant those people independently create their own state and regulate themselves. But this does happen in some scenarios. And the reason I say this happens all the time is because I think people forget that new countries are formed not often 
But like in 2011, so around a decade ago, Sudan was split into South Sudan and Sudan, probably because there was two different nations of people who wanted some form of independence. Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008. Montenegro split from Serbia in 2006. So there's like lots of examples of new states being formed from nations of people within it. And the reason I went down this rabbit hole is just to acknowledge the idea that, you know, we used the example of America before, but at one point, America was a nation united by certain ideals such that they actually needed to create its own defined state. And I think acknowledging the difference between a nation and a state and how closely aligned a nation is, is interesting. And it relates to our conversation before about how a lot of people now identify more with actually some political party that in a sense is their nation, not the United States of America. Right. So I guess you would expect within a nation, there's more uniformity in identity or ideals or beliefs. And then in a state that may exist in the beginning, but it can fracture over time. Do you agree with that? I think it can happen. It doesn't have to happen. And he even has a line here, which is the state is top down and hierarchical, while a nation is bottom up and peer to peer. And so it doesn't have to mean that they dislocate. But if there are bottom up peer to peer identities that surface and become extremely important to people that actually trump the wider original nation national identity, I think that's when sometimes, you know, problems can occur. And so I'm assuming someone like Balaji is going to argue that the US is somehow fracturing based on these like changing identities or ideals, and that that will lead to something different for the state. What he is commenting on, and, and this is from my interview with him on the A16Z podcast, but yes, he does talk about how you see the fracturing, not just in terms of identity and you know what someone puts in their Twitter bio, but in terms of actually the two parties like Democrats and Republicans interacting. And even he comments on, for example, like 96% of Democrats marry Democrats. It's only 4% marry Republicans. And you can see how when certain identities become so strong, it's not just a hypothetical, but he even uses the term, it becomes biological, right? Where you see these ideals compounding. And I think this is, you know, coming back to our conversation around identity, it's not so much that I want to talk so much about politics, but I think it's an example of where identity can become so strong that it overpowers everything else in certain circumstances where you're not willing to engage with other people on the other side. We talked about keeping your identity small. It feels like the political identity in the United States has become very large using Paul Graham's term, keeping it small. Yeah. I wonder if a good way to like, let's say your identity is somewhat conscious and chosen, and then it's somewhat unconscious and unchosen. The way to actually get a better awareness of the things that you identify with would be to pay attention to what you get angry about. Mm -hmm. Because I think that would be like, you only really care about the things you identify with. And just to give a trite personal example, I am a writer and a podcaster. If you're just like objectively, I create podcasts and I create articles. If someone criticizes my writing, I'm much more likely to take that personally and to be upset about it than if someone said, oh, your podcast is garbage. And it's partially just because I'm like, I want to be a good writer, I identify more as a writer. And 
like the podcast thing, I'm like, oh, I'm just having fun. I'm talking to my wife. We're just sharing ideas <laughs> about identity. And I just don't take it as personally. And I think it's because I identify less with this idea that I am a podcaster. I'm here to share ideas with the world via this medium. And that's like a small example of it, but it leads to, I would say, a difference in how I would interpret, say, negative feedback on both mediums. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. And I think even when I was younger, I used to not be aware of where identity would filter into really mundane things. Like I would say, you know, if I'm in a gifted program, well, then like I shouldn't dress a certain way. Like that's not me or that doesn't fit my personality. Um, versus now I'm like, I want to be the kind of person who goes deep into some like AI paper, but also gets my nails done, but also plays soccer, but also, you know, just is open to doing absolutely anything if it interests me. And that was not always true. Yeah. And so there's probably some identity that's replaced the formerly rigid one. Just talking from a personal example, I identify as like a curious person. And mm -hmm. I think my primary identity, if I had to say that I had one, I guess I do try to live by Paul Graham's keep your identity small, would be that I'm a human being. And so are you. <laughs> and so are all these people that I agree with and don't agree with. And actually in conversations, I don't find it that difficult to connect with people who have just wildly different ideas than me, some of which I just, I don't enjoy. I don't think they're good ideas. But at the end of the day, I see us all as humans who come to these beliefs through different means. And that belief, that sense of identity of being a curious person who can connect with the broader human experience sort of allows me to stay open and not let anger or a rigid way of thinking stop that form of connection. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And when they talk about political polarization and the effects of it and how the country is being ruined or it's being rebuilt or whatever, I think they're really getting wrapped up in this, a smaller form of thinking about the world because of these like internal compass points that they've developed for one reason or another. But I think your point about your identity being wrapped in being curious is actually such a great example of how identity can be used in a good way. I think most of the time identity is passive, like it infiltrates our minds without us realizing, but you can actually use identity to curb some of your negative attributes, not yours, but anyone's, right? So like I've talked about how I like to see myself more as an artist recently to like ignite my creativity. But similarly, I'm often late for things and I've found that points in the past, if I try to use identity, it can help where I'm like, wait, no, I, I am a respectful person. I'm not the person who keeps someone waiting. I'm not the person who can't get their life together enough to be on time for something. And obviously I still have troubles <laughs> with being on time, but I think in points of my life, when I've been closest to the person I want to be, it's when I've used identity to be like, no, I'm not the person who can't work out or who isn't fit. Like I'm not that person. Or I don't want to be that person. And I think that's where you can actually use identity if people are struggling with politics to be like, no, I, I'm i the person who's willing to hear anyone out. I'm the person who's the smartest in the room because I take in the most information, right? You can kind of come up with an identity that the most calm version of yourself wants to be that you can, if you really try to internalize some of those things, I think it can actually work. Yeah, if there's one takeaway, I think it should be that, that your identity is malleable and that you can use this powerful mechanism for the glasses you see the world in a good way. I mean, just to quickly rattle them off, like, I see myself as a curious person. I think I can learn something from everyone I meet. 
I want to be someone who does what he says he's going to do. So integrity. And mm-hmm. there's just a series of these principles that I sort of built and adopted along the way that were not a part of my natural programming. I don't want to be someone who gossips about his friends or partner behind their back or something like that. And you're not just born with those things. Like those are ideas that you can develop and that if you truly believe them, then they can shape your life for the the better. And now finally, the identity that has taken over all identities is I am a surfer. I, and this is that really is your for sure primary identity. And it does guide a lot that you do, but at least you're clear on that. Yeah. I mean, I won't go into too much detail, but I didn't surf 10 years ago at all. And then when I picked it up, it slowly started to take over. And now from how I work out to where I live, to where I travel, to how I think about the day, to my relationship with ambition, all of it is guided by the silly sport of trying to take a little foam board out there and dance on the waves for a brief moment. And it's incredible how much that can just totally reshape your existence. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just has happened. And it leads to this thing I heard from a a guy I used to work with, but he's like, your identity can be anything. It's the most important decision you can make. Like I made this decision to be a business builder and to change the world through entrepreneurship a long time ago. I could have done a million different things, but that has forever changed my like the last few decades and think hard about what you tie your identity to because you become that person and it shapes everything. Yeah. And I love the idea that you actually do have autonomy in selecting it, even though that sounds counterintuitive because a lot of people think identity is something like internal, but to your point about like changing over time, one thing that I take pride in now and have for the last couple of decades is if someone tells me something, I'm not going to go and like, you know, gossip about it. I'm not going to share it with someone who I wasn't supposed to. And that was because when I was really young, I did that once and I shared a secret I wasn't supposed to. And then someone found out and there was just so much shame. This was like in elementary school, by the way, but I still remember this. And I remember feeling so shameful about not being the person that I wanted to be, or like people seeing me in that negative light that I was like, I'm just, I'm not that person. If someone tells me something, I'm not going to go and and spread it. And I've been that way ever since because I reshaped my identity when I was like six, seven years old or I mean, four years old. I don't even remember how old I was, but I just remember being in front of my elementary school during recess. So yeah. I also want to leave listeners with just this really cool project I stumbled upon recently that I think relates to this topic. It's this generative agents paper. We'll link it in the show notes. And it is these researchers out of Stanford who have basically created the simplest way you could put it is like the Sims using LLMs or AI. So instead of really rote mechanical rules that dictate what Sims do, um, these generative agents are actually programmed in a way where they observe they plan their actions and take actions, but also do higher level reflections. And the paper is amazing. They've, they have some really clever architecture about like how often an agent reflects and it's when a certain number of, you know, interesting things have happened. And you can see these agents kind of operate amongst each other and how they talk and they have really fruitful conversations, like shockingly realistic, believable lives, you know, they react if something's burning on the stove. You know, if if a father sees his son gardening outside, he like goes out to see him and says like how's your day going? It's it's actually pretty incredible. 
But the reason it all comes back to identity is each one of these characters has a seed prompt. And that seed prompt is around one paragraph. It's shockingly simple. And it's something along the lines of identity. Like this is Bob and, you know, Bob is a father. He cares a lot about X, Y, and Z. He kind of knows his neighbor, although he's suspicious of X or it's really short and pretty incredible because those short seed paragraphs are able to create these environments in addition to all the other architecture that are just extremely believable. And that actually is what I found made a lot of the interactions believable because you can kind of get a sense of, oh, these two are friends or these two don't trust each other. Or I would just encourage people coming back to our wider episode arc to actually go and similar to how these generative agents have an identity seed prompt to almost write one for yourself and maybe even do two of them, like write the one that is maybe more closely aligned to how you operate today. And then maybe write the version that you want to be. You know what I mean? Like we talked about what is the identity you want to take on? That's a cool exercise. I wonder how many people would actually just start with the version they wanted to be and not actually be close to the true one. This is where you can maybe engage your friends. Like, hey, what are three words you would use to describe me? I've done stuff like that in the past to calibrate on, you know, my sense of who I am versus how other people perceive me. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll leave people with that exercise. I really enjoyed this episode. I think it's such an important topic. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time.